You are listening to episode number 27 of the Self-Care Sunday podcast, a minimalist media project by Kaylee Reed. Every Sunday, only on Sundays, I'll release a new podcast episode exploring topics like mental health, entrepreneurship, creativity, and of course, self-care. We're putting women at the center of our media and behind the creation of it, and today's interview features Caitlin Bourgeois, a three-time startup founder turned growth strategist. Caitlin's entrepreneurial journey has been a roller coaster to say the least. She was named as one of Nova Scotia's top 10 young entrepreneurs in 2012. She sold her first business in 2013. She was named an influential entrepreneur by Forbes magazine in 2016. And in 2017, she made the difficult decision to close down her venture-backed tech startup after three years in operation. In this episode, we talk about what it's like to experience burnout as an entrepreneur, how difficult it is to say goodbye to a big chapter in your life, such as closing down a company that you've been running for three years, and Caitlin's advice to upcoming entrepreneurs, and especially young entrepreneurs who may be starting out a new project or looking for funding for a startup that they're working on. With vast experience as a marketer and product designer, Caitlin now works as a growth strategist and trainer, and the majority of her clients are high-growth tech companies. This woman knows what she's talking about, so let's get right into the episode. Well, thank you so much, Caitlin. I'm really looking forward to this episode, and I was just saying before we started recording that this phone call already kind of feels like we were in the podcast episode because you're just so easy to talk to. And I've been looking forward to this episode for a while because when I was in the midst of the whole storm of figuring out what I was going to do with where your label and if I was going to leave or what that process was going to look like, you were one of the only people that I felt like I could actually talk to about that because you were someone that had been really open about your startup experiences and how that affected your mental health and all of that online. And so even though we don't really know each other that well, I feel like we've had some really good conversations already. So I'm really, really glad that you're here. Thank you. Thank you, and thank you. It's been such an absolute pleasure, and it's been awesome watching your journey because, you know, I remember the first time we did speak and chatting about the difficulties of startup life and, you know, co-founders and all that stuff. It, um, it was nice to see somebody who was putting some honesty into their story because I think that in startups there's a lot of pressure to you know, fake it until you make it and say everything's great all the time and talk about how, you know, everything's going perfect, we're, we're crushing it is kind of that saying that people will use. And I think it's just nice to see people being honest. And the funny thing is most people are honest about their journey later once they've kind of like reached that plateau of success where it's not going to hurt them. I think it'd be nice for people to be honest with their journey earlier because that's where the pain is the worst. Yeah. Yeah. So true. And I actually, I'm thinking right now, like I don't even fully remember how we met. Was it just like through startup events? I think it was through startup events. Maybe I feel like it could have been, um, Heather 
Richie maybe connected okay. to you and Heather, right? Yeah, well, yeah, the same thing. Like, I didn't really know her, but the whole, like, startup community in New Brunswick is so small, or the East Coast in general is so small. So I think okay. it was just, like, through hearing about you through other people, and then I remember, actually, before we even get into the whole startup stories and, and burnout and all of that, I want to talk a little bit about what you're doing right now and, like, who Kate is right now. Sure. Um, that's a great question. So, you know, going through my startup journey, I came out of it and I really didn't know what I wanted to do next, which felt a little strange to me because I had been an entrepreneur at that point for around seven years, um, and I'd always been driven. I always knew kind of what the next goal was for the company. You know, before I started my tech startup, I had a branding agency and a restaurant consulting agency. And so I always kind of knew what success looked like in the goals that I was driving after. And when I closed down my, my company, I had no idea what to do next. That felt really weird and something that I hadn't felt before. I was really fortunate in my journey to have made an amazing network of incredible entrepreneurs, people from the startup space and beyond. And so it felt natural for me to go back into kind of doing freelance consulting work. Um, and I used that as a kind of, okay, I'm going to do this for a little while. I've got some great clients to the startup community and I'll figure out what's next. And Within that um, experience, what I realized, the thing that I'm so passionate about, I'm so passionate about helping companies and especially founders to figure out how to avoid some of the pain that I went through. And I think that it's only becoming more difficult to start a company these days. There's a lot more competition. There's a lot more complexity when it comes to growth. And I wanted to do everything I could do to help founders have their best chance. And what's interesting is that um, when you look at the statistics around um, startups, small businesses, and even enterprise companies that are releasing new products, failure rates are still astonishingly high. It's anywhere between 80 to 97%. Wow. Um, it's crazy, and when you, you know, a lot of smart people have studied this problem, and they basically come up with a pretty clear answer, and the answer is when customer needs are understood, you know, understanding customer needs is the difference between success or failure. So companies will release products um, and, you know, build and services that don't actually meet their customers' needs, and that's the reason why so many companies are failing. So... The more that I kind of like focused in on that problem, the more that I got excited about, well, that seems like an easy problem to solve. <laughs> like if the, if the challenge is understanding your customer's needs, then that's talking to your customers. It's, you know, using customer research to really make the right product decisions and the right marketing decisions. Um, so that's really what I'm focusing on these days. My kind of specific area of focus is there's a innovation framework that I've absolutely become obsessed with um, called Jobs to be Done. It's pretty new. Um, it's growing in popularity, but it's pretty new. There's a book released in 2016 that kind of like brought this to the surface that a lot of companies are using this, this format to grow. Um, but big companies like Amazon, Ikea, and Apple, they've been working this way for, you know, you know, decades. And so what I'm focused on right now is using the platform that I've built to create training to help early stage companies use this innovation framework called Jobs to be Done 
to figure out what products to build and to figure out how to sell more of those products. So you've had a really interesting journey and you mentioned being an entrepreneur for seven years prior to where you're at now. What has that journey looked like and what were some of those challenges that we've kind of alluded to already in this conversation? Well, the funny thing about me is, you know, you talk to some entrepreneurs and they say, oh, you know, I was like, you know, I had a lemonade stand when I was six years old and I had my first, like, you know, small business when I was 15 and I wasn't one of those people. Like, quite honestly, I had no interest in business until it kind of just fell in my lap. So I had always kind of considered myself to be a bit of a creative. I thought business people were boring and you know, money-driven, and that wasn't me. I wanted to create, and I initially thought that I would be a um, journalist, and I went to um, a university that's one of the best universities for journalism, and I started the program. I just, I wasn't loving it, and it wasn't the right fit, but I liked writing, so I ended up doing an English degree. So, like any anybody with an English degree, basically graduate with four years of debt, not a lot of job prospects. (laughs) Um, This was back in, I guess, 2005? Probably 2005 is right. Um, So I, you know, became a professional waitress for a while and had the opportunity to work for a great boss who had an awesome restaurant. She was a super inspiring businesswoman. She started the restaurant at 27 and she's been working as a stockbroker in London, England. And she... She said to me, she's like, you're such a great writer. You're so great with people. Have you ever considered PR? And I said, I don't even know what that is. <laughs> what is PR? Um, and she's like, you know, it's when you represent brands and you help them with um, getting press and things like that. And I said, that sounds cool. Um, and so I looked into PR and I saw that there was a program through a local college. It was a one-year advanced diploma program. So you had to have an undergrad to do it, um, but you could finish the program in a year. And I was a bit of, like, a snob at the time when it came to, like, college or university. I thought, okay, I'll go to this college program, and then I'll use that, and I'll be able to do this university master's program in, like, two years instead of three. I think it was, like, I could do it one year instead of of two. But it was actually the most amazing program because it was incredibly hands-on, and it made me realize that, like, when it comes to learning, theory, which is, like, what a lot of university often is, is terrific, but hands-on is one of the best ways to learn, um, and especially for myself. And it also made me realize, oh, my God, I love business. <laughs> like, <laughs> this is awesome. And so I, it really was a big surprise. So through learning about PR, what I realized is my real interest was in, you know, branding and communications and design. Like, I love that whole world. And I really wanted to work at a advertising agency. And so when I graduated from the PR program, I applied to all the agencies and um, was lucky enough to get brought in as a temp um, at one of those agencies. I was absolutely loving it. I was getting to work on cool projects, you know, big budget ad campaigns. And I was like, this is exactly what I've always wanted. This is so awesome. And then out of the blue, somebody reaches out to me through Twitter, which I wasn't even very active on at the time. I was just kind of like, I was supposed to be on here, so I was on there. And he had just sold his advertising agency and was starting up what he called a creative collective where it would be a number of freelancers that would come together under one roof, rent their spot, and they would be able to work on bigger projects together, but then also be able to do their own client work. And he had one big client, and that client um, 
was, he said to me, he's like, if you come on as part of this creative collective, I can guarantee you 20 to 25 hours of work a week. You can, you'll have to find the rest on your own, but, you know, I can guarantee this working to be your own, your own business. And I was like, this is crazy. Like, I just got started. Am I ready for this? But it seemed like a great opportunity. Um, and he was an incredible mentor. And so I said, yes. And that was really how I started my business. It was like I got to have this incredible gift of having one foot in the door of kind of being an employee for him and then also being able to build up my own business in the process. And within a year, I hired my first employee. And then, you know, within two years, I was we were a team of five. And so it's like I fell into that world, but the fun part about it was I had no idea I was an entrepreneur. I didn't consider myself to be one necessarily. It wasn't like I was like dreaming of starting my own business. But once I started, it was like, this was it. I found my thing. And so whenever I talk to people that are still kind of feeling a bit stuck and hunting for their thing, it's like, you need to try different stuff. It's the thing that you love the most you might not even realize is the thing. So true. And it's funny because the way that you were describing university... I had a very similar experience and I think like a lot of people going through the university system right now have that similar experience of you graduate with a bunch of debt and basically no job prospects (laughs) in what you studied. Um, But what I remember like in high school before graduating uh, was teachers basically giving us options of like, well, you can go do a Bachelor of Arts and become a lawyer, or you do a Bachelor Uh of Science and become a doctor. And then there's engineering, and that's like basically all of your options. (laughs) And it's so true that like, you don't even know what you love, you don't even really, you might not know what you're good at, until you're actually doing it, because there's so many things like, influencer marketing wasn't even a thing like three or four years ago and now it's my full-time job after leaving my startup so it's always wild to me just how people find their passions how long did you do the whole PR thing before your next step in your journey so I um the company was Red Riot and we did PR but you know what most of what we did what I really discovered that I loved was um, branding and guerrilla marketing so that's what our kind of focus was. And we got to work with some awesome clients, um, you know, doing PR for like Target and Holiday Inn. Um, and that was fun. But in that process, what I kind of realized was I love marketing, but my husband at the time, he was um, a restaurateur. Um, and I had, you know, I worked in restaurants. Some of my uh, first, my first job was in a restaurant. And I loved restaurants. I understood that world. And I thought maybe in addition to, you know, doing the branding, I hadn't really niched down um, with Red Riot. I was focusing on servicing lots of different clients. I worked with, you know, companies like Target and Holiday Inn, but also like one person, like freelancers would hire me to do their logos. It was all over the place. And as a marketer, I felt like I wasn't really taking my advice, which is, Mm. you know, focus on a niche and really be known for being the best at that thing, position your company well. So I started um, a second consultancy called uh, The Fork Project, and I partnered with other restaurant consultants, um, chefs and interior decorators and sommeliers and um, and, uh, mixologists, and kind of like would bring them together to work on different client projects. 
And that company was acquired within two years by um, another startup. So that was that was a fun ride. But again, like what I think, I kept wanting more. Like I wanted to move away from selling my time for money. Mm-hmm. I wanted to sell something that was more scalable. And that was when I had came up with the idea. I was kind of like batting around two ideas at the time. I was thinking about maybe doing an online course. And this would have been back in like 2013 when they weren't what they are now. Like I feel like online courses have had this like explosion. They're almost kind of like petering off depending on what world you're in. Uh, like when it comes to marketing stuff, like there's a lot of noise. Mm-hmm. Um, there's probably lots of other niches where there's tons and tons of opportunity. So I started with the idea of doing an online course, but I also had this idea for a tech company and I had, no business thinking I should start a tech company, but I, you know, we designed a lot of websites with my agency, and so that part of it I understood, um, and I figured how hard could it be? <laughs> <laughs> I was pretty naive. Which, um, I think you kind of need to be totally. to want to do a tech startup because if you actually knew <laughs> just how hard it is going in, you might never do it. Yeah. Um, so that's kind of how I was toying with the idea, do I do this online course or do I take this idea I have for a tech company and pursue this? Um, and a number of kind of different opportunities came up to push me down the road to do the tech company. Um, Dalhousie University has just launched a new program called Starting Lean, which would help companies who had an idea use what's called the Lean Startup Method to explore it. So that was something that just launched, I was like, oh, this is perfect. I can kind of explore this idea, figure out if it's worth building or not. And then this um, incubator called Volta, uh, Volta Labs had just started in Halifax. And when I joined Volta Labs, it was like, I think seven or eight companies, like in this old building that was like falling apart and had mice running everywhere. And it was just completely run down, but there was all these crazy ambitious people wanting to do these big things. And some of those companies have gone on to be huge companies now, really, really successful. Um, and Volta itself has grown and it's now three levels of prime, you know, primary real estate down in Halifax's core. So like I joining Volta, I think was really the accelerator that this made me feel like I can pursue this. I'm really going to focus on the startup. Um, but I was bootstrapping it. I was paying for all of my developers and like, you know, the product design through revenue from my agency. So it was, it was a tough time, but a crazy journey. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. The whole bootstrapping versus raising a lot of money versus taking out loans to fund a startup is a really interesting conversation uh, because I think a lot of people from the outside looking in that haven't had that experience of needing money to pay for things and figuring out how to get it, <laughs> uh, they might see that whole process of building a startup as like money just comes out of nowhere and all of a sudden you have a startup that's functioning and, and doing really well from the outside looking in. What Did that like have an emotional toll on you at all to be using like your own money to fund something or did it give you a sense of like more ownership or what was that like? I did all three of the kind of options. So I bootstrapped using my own money. We, I ended up taking loans that were personally guaranteed and we raised venture capital. 
from both traditional investors and from friends and family. So I've done all of them. I would say, um, you know, I'm probably a bit jaded now um, (laughs) from the process. Like, I would say my advice to any entrepreneur at this stage would be the idea that we were trying to build. We're trying to build, um, you know, people who are doing the same thing we were doing. We pivoted within our journey. People who are doing a similar thing to what we were doing, they had raised $5 million in their first year. Um, At the time, we'd gotten the same numbers, like the same growth numbers, and I'd only put in 80,000 of both of my own money and of a, of a business loan. So, I mean, we were doing, we were really wow. running on nothing. Yeah. Like we were doing a lot with absolutely nothing. Um, I would say that emotional soul, absolutely. One of the things that I learned about myself, and this is a good thing to learn is that I don't cope well when there's extreme financial insecurity. Mm-hmm. Like, it was really, really hard for me to think, like I was, I really struggled with the fundraising process. I mean, I was able to raise some funds, which I know a lot of founders aren't able to raise any, um, but I really struggled with it. I, you know, there's lots of reasons for that. I think that I was really great at telling the story. You know, I'd win pitch contests and be flown, you know, all over the world as, as like a prize for winning these pitch contests. When it came down to it, a lot of people wanted me on stage to pitch my business because it was, you know, I was kind of good at it, but very few people were willing to open their wallets and actually invest. Mm. Um, And so that part I struggled with. We needed to raise a lot of capital to be able to play the game we were playing. And what I wish I would have done at the time, what I wish I would have known at the time, was I didn't have to raise that capital. I could have played a different game. I wish I would have changed the business model of the company and focused on sustainable growth through revenue as opposed to focusing on um, being a company that could only exist if we were heavily venture-backed because I think that my mental health would have been a lot better and I think that, you know, if you, the nice thing about venture capital and the frustrating thing about venture capital is when you don't need it, everybody will write you a check. Like if you're actually able to get to the place where the company's profitable and you're showing good growth, everybody will write you checks. Of course. Um, but it's when you are struggling and the only way you're going to be able to reach the growth milestones you need is by getting capital and you really, really need it. I mean, that's when nobody's to be found. And taking on a small business loan for a company that the business model required venture capital was a mistake and I recognize that now and it forced me I think to do some pretty stupid things to try to like keep the wheels in motion um, and reflecting back on it I, I do regret that um, I regret it to the extent that if I knew what I knew now I might not do the same thing but at the same time I'm the lessons I've learned are so priceless that maybe I would do it all over again mm-hmm. I'd say Yeah. Yeah. It's always in retrospect, you find so many things that you're like, wow, if only I knew, (laughs) if only Uh I knew things might be a totally different story. But at the same time, if you would have known those things, it's like you said, said at the beginning, there is value in being naive when you start something Uh because you might not have actually done everything that you did without having that just like ignorance is bliss like oh yeah I'm just gonna 
this is how I felt when we were starting Wear Your Label. It's just like, oh yeah, well, it's just going to be a business now. Like, okay, so now we're just going to do this. Okay, we're just going to figure it out. And it's so crazy because then you look at certain success stories and not that we can compare because I mean, there's a lot of, um, these, like, you look at like the Kylie Jenner story, right? Yeah. Like, she, like, in so many ways, I mean, she had a lot of advantages having already been in the spotlight and having kind of like her family is this channel to get messaging out there and having all the connections she would have. But one of like, you know, the really, she did some really brilliant things with her business model that other people in her space weren't doing, you know, Mm -hmm. selling direct to consumer through her website, drop shipping everything, like not producing her own product, having like the whole thing done outside of, um, and only selling, you know, buying what she sold, you know, like there was some really, really, brilliant things that she did both as a marketer and product manager um, that are really good lessons and the great thing with the way she did it was that traditionally to play the game she was playing you would have had to raise massive amounts of venture capital which she could do with her connections but she was able to kind of take this different route and really mitigate her risk in the beginning uh, by doing it the way she was doing it and I think it's a lesson to anybody with an idea. Like, there's ways that you can validate your idea and do them on a smaller scale um, to get to the point where you start to either, A, make enough revenue to get it sustainable, um, or B, get to a place where you're proving enough opportunity that it makes sense to get a bank loan or it makes sense to bring on venture partners to, to grow it. I just think that I see a lot of companies today, especially tech startups, that have this idea and that, like, haven't fully thought it through and that more so just want to build a startup than Mm. really are super excited about the problem they're solving. And I think that there's, like, this kind of, like, romanticism and heroism around being the next Mark Zuckerberg or the next, (laughs) you know, whoever. And it's those companies that I think really need to take a step back and really get some awareness around what success looks like and whether they are in it for the right reasons. Because, like, there's, at the end of the day, the only reason to build a company is to create value for customers. And if that's not your end game, which I think for a lot of founders, it's gotten lost. I mean, that's not their end game. It's like, raise money and have a big exit and, you know, really impress my friends and family. And that's kind of become almost fetishized in, like, the entrepreneur world. But because it's so hard now, because the barriers to entry are so low and there's so much competition, if your goal isn't to create tons of value for customers, then your chances of being successful are incredibly low. Yeah. Yeah. And, well, what's what's interesting with that is there's so many people celebrating the hustle, celebrating the grind, celebrating starting a company, celebrating, you know, the PR and the sales milestones and all of that. But like you said earlier, there's this massive failure rate still that nobody is really talking about. Like there's very few people on the internet and very few entrepreneurs that are super open about the lowest of lows when it's so common and particularly like things like depression in the startup community, burnout. It's really rare for people to be talking about these things because it's not as sexy as the ideas of making it big. So I want to talk a bit about how you reset after 
you experienced some of the bigger challenges that you did. And, you know, like, how do you get back on track after it feels like everything is falling apart? You know, for me, it, it, it really took a while. I thought that when I made the decision to close down the startup that I would, you know, that would take this huge weight off. But there was still all of this stuff unfinished, and there was still a lot of uncertainty. Financially, I had to figure out what I was going to do because I had personally mounted up over $100,000 debt. And I, I looked at what the repayment would look like for that, and it just was insurmountable. And so I had to file a consumer proposal, which is similar to a bankruptcy in that you're able to alleviate some of your debt. It screws your credit for three years. In, but I was able to reduce um, my debt down from about $150,000 to $20,000 that I'm paying off for the next three years. So that process didn't happen right away. That took about six months to get figured out, and that was incredibly stressful. And I didn't, like I said, I, I really didn't know. It was only, I'd say in the last four, maybe four months, I would say, that I've really started to get a sense of clarity around what I'm doing and the and like the role that I want to play in the eco like the entrepreneurial ecosystem. And it's really only then that I started to breathe a little bit. And I'm somebody I probably if I were diagnosed, I'd probably have I've never been diagnosed, but I probably have um, generalized anxiety disorder. Anxiety for me is like this thing that comes in waves where I'll have sometimes weeks that go by and I feel pretty good. Um, you know, I don't need to take out a van. I don't have anxiety attacks. Like, I, anxiety is kind of always there, but I'll be able to cope and manage it fairly well. And then I'll have weeks where it's just this, like, this kind of crippling thing where, you know, I'm driving in the car and I'm just, you know, feeling like waves of anxiety, feeling like I'm near an anxiety attack, and it it, it doesn't feel it's it's not always related to something. And so for me, the big thing has been recognizing when and why this anxiety happens for me. And I think that the big important thing is that I am somebody that likes to have a lot of control and clarity around what's going to come next. So when I don't, and in life you often don't, like. One of the activities that I do, um, that one of my mentors, who's an incredible, he was an investor in my first company, we've done work together since, and now he's gone on to become a senator for Canada, and he's an incredible person who's just motivated to help entrepreneurs succeed. One of the things he talked to me about is, like, when you're feeling like you've got all this stuff and it's becoming really overwhelming, there's this thing I do called my um, backpack of stresses. And what he does, like, what he recommends is, like, you just write down all of the different things that are in the back of your mind causing you stress. And you just write them down on paper. And then you write down, like, well, what am I going to do about these things? And, you know, what would happen if I did nothing about these things? And for me, I find that that exercise is so therapeutic because, like, oftentimes when I write down all of the things that in the back of my mind are causing me all this stress, and I actually get them on a paper, and I write down what I'm going to do, like, it's like, why am I even stressed about these? These are not a big deal. Like, mm. it's just like, it's just that they're kind of in the back of your mind all taking up space, and that's a thing. Um, the other thing for me is that I need to exercise every day. If I don't, like, it's 
not good for my mental health. I just feel a lot more anxiety and stress. So, like, I need to, like, sweat every single day. That helps a lot. And the other thing that I found, and I don't know if this is this was just correlation or causation, but I had, when I um, closed down my company, I had wanted to get back to, like, focusing on my, I, my health. I gained weight while I was, like, building the business. And so I was trying the ketogenic diet. Uh, which some people swear by and friends of mine have done and it's been amazing for both their like clarity and like weight loss and like just feeling really good for me I didn't feel good on it I felt like a lot of stress um, a lot of anxiety and when I stopped doing it I seemed to notice my anxiety go away Hmm. and I tried doing it two times I tried doing it and feeling a lot of anxiety and then not doing it um, over the course of like about eight months and so one of the things that I think I learned is that like I need carbs (laughs) <laughs> my body needs carbs. I love and that. So Bread is great. Little things, you know? Um, what inspired you to be so open about your story? Because it's scary to talk about failure, uh, even with people that are close with us, like talking to my friends or my family about certain things when yeah. they're not going right is challenging and same with mental health. Like what motivated you to really openly share with like the Facebook world (laughs) what you were going through I think for me I think part of it was that behind closed doors when you talk to other entrepreneurs in like those quiet settings everybody is willing to say yeah me too but it's in the public eye and in like their kind of like you know social media persona that they're not And so I knew that this wasn't just me. I knew that there was tons of people feeling the same way. And for some reason, I just felt like I I was never afraid to be the one to come out and say, I'm struggling with this because struggling with something that's really, really hard, in my opinion, is like its own badge of honor. It's like if you don't try really, really hard things, then you're not going to struggle with them. So when you're trying to do these really hard things and things aren't going as planned, to me it's like there's nothing to be ashamed of. There's this TED Talk um, where the, I think the title of the TED Talk is we need to teach little girls to stop trying to be perfect and instead be brave. Mm-hmm. And it's this idea that women especially are you know, part of the way that our culture is, especially in North America, women from a very early age are encouraged to do the right thing and to be polite and to you know get things right and it really I think it really triggers a lot of women to develop these perfectionist tendencies that you can't fail and I used to say that I was a proud perfectionist now I recognize that my perfectionist tendencies actually can really cost me a lot of time I still struggle with it. Like, I still care about getting things right and doing things well. Um, And I still think there's a lot of value in it. Like, I think that doing a good job is something that is worth being proud of. But I sometimes will take it to this extreme. But in this TED Talk, the uh, person says what she does is she asks her daughters in the morning, or maybe it was her dad who asked her. Like, every day he would ask for every week at the, the dinner table, what did you fail at this week? And I think that this, we don't, like, I think that there's, like, celebrating failure isn't necessarily the right thing, because it's, like, you don't want to celebrate that somebody's failed, because failure still sucks. It feels really bad. 
But I think that recognizing that failure is part of the journey and that like openly sharing your failures with other people who are on a similar journey allows you to feel connected. And I think that at the end of it, it's all we want as human beings. Like we're, we're wired to want to feel like we have community and be connected to people. And so for me, it was just, I don't know that I was necessarily inspired. It was just like, I felt like a duty Mm. to, especially to the other young women who I feel like in this, you know, Instagram obsessed world are really feeling a lot of pain and frustration in their lack of success. And I think that it was really important to show that like, even when from an outside world, you can perceive somebody to be really, really successful. Chances are there's some parts of their journey that you're not seeing because they're not sexy and they're not glamorous Mm -hmm. that if you were to see them would make you feel a lot more like okay with what you're doing and that you're doing just fine yes yeah well I think this perfectionism does run through so many women and With this podcast specifically, I've made a point of only having female guests on the show for a couple of reasons. One, because so many of the conversations that have really helped shape me as both an entrepreneur and as a person have been with my female friends or female coworkers. And I think there's just like a lot of uh, stories behind amazing women that maybe don't get told as often as the stories behind really successful men, because they're just throughout century has been more successful men. And that's just the thing. (laughs) But one thing I'm curious about is your experience as a woman in tech and as a female entrepreneur, because I've, I hear mixed stories. I had a male co-founder and at the time I didn't really think that much of it but in retrospect just seeing the way that our male advisors would react to what he did or said versus what I did or said um, it became more clear to me that there actually was dichotomies that were just really subtle and underlying and you know part of the culture so was that something that you ever felt like you faced or do you think that it's becoming a lot better now? I think that um, I definitely felt some, you know, some sexism in certain situations. I would say that when it was blatant, it was frustrating. But the thing about, the thing that I've like realized, and this is, this is such a challenge for us is like, not just like women in tech, but like as a human race to really recognize and try to work on individually and as a society is that implicit bias is something that we all struggle with. And so implicit bias is that we, whether we, it's almost like this this unconscious biases that we've developed over our lifetimes. And it's very dominant in the tech world. And you see a lot of um, kind of like investors especially, they'll do pattern matching. And so they want to see like, what are the patterns? If you look at all of these unicorn companies, which every investor wants to get a billion dollar unicorn mm-hmm. company in their portfolio, like all of those unicorn companies for the most part have this similar pattern, which is they were started by this young 
programmer who was able to, you know, write the, like, you know, develop the initial product or in their garage and build it to be this billion dollar business. And so there's implicit bias. They're used to seeing the same people sitting in front of them, the same success stories. And it's hard when they see a different story being told to recognize the value. And the other thing is that, like, I think especially in tech, I I don't have anything to support this except for my own kind of anecdotal experiences, but it seems like women tend to build companies with products or services that might be more appealing to other women. And I think that probably that's the same might be true for men, but it's more dominant with women. And oftentimes when you see women developing a company with a product line that is more focused to women, and, you know, 93% of investors are men, the product might have, they might be able to tell the best story about that company and what that opportunity is. But if the men can't actually resonate with the problem, they have a really hard time getting excited about it. And so I think that the first thing we need to do in the tech community is recognize that a lot of companies do need venture funding to grow and that there needs to be an equal representation of women sitting on investment boards and investment teams. Like only 7% of investment worldwide goes to women, which is crazy. And a scarier number is 05 or 0.3% of investment goes to black women, which is crazy. So my thing is, like, I think what we need to do is I think we need to have open conversations about gender, about race, about, like, about our implicit bias. And I think we need to recognize that, you know, as a, as a white woman, I also have implicit bias. Like, I recognize it in myself. I grew up in a small town that was all white. Like, there, was two, there were two Chinese families, and there were, I think there was, there wasn't even a black family in my community. It was 2,500 people, and there were no black families in my community. And so it wasn't really until university when I was had the opportunity to make friends with people who were, were, were white. And even in university, I would say 95% of my like fellow classmates were white. And so when you grow up and you have these kind of like cultural experiences, you might not have intellectually any biases, but in, like subconsciously you do. And I think that that's the thing we need to recognize is that we need to be aware of our implicit biases and we need to actually think how do we structurally create a game that benefits everyone? Because we can't do it intellectually because we oftentimes we're not intentionally being biased. Mm-hmm. So we need to actually put the structure in place and rebuild the bricks and mortars of like some of these institutions and these business systems so that they are fair for everyone. Because if we don't do it at that level, it's just going to keep happening. Yeah, there, it's... <laughs> I'm just sitting here being like, oh man, like I'm not ready to start another startup yet. <laughs> when I when I left my startup, I was like, yep, I am going to take some time to just not be in that world for a while because there is so many challenges and it's incredibly difficult, but also so rewarding So what would be your advice for young entrepreneurs that are really starry-eyed right now? Um, What can they be doing or maybe what's like a mindset thing? I don't know. Any advice that you think is important for young entrepreneurs to hear? I would say that the biggest thing is 
really, really, really focused on falling in love with the problem that you want to solve and being driven and motivated and passionate about that problem. And then learn as much as you can from people who have that problem about what it, how it affects their lives. Because these are the insights that are going to allow you to innovate and create new solutions where other people haven't. At the end of the day, if you're starting a company, the companies that are the most successful companies in the world are the ones that solve the biggest problems. And so my first, yeah, my first focus would be, you know, focus on that problem. And it needs to align with what you're passionate about. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of entrepreneurs might be good at something, so they start a business at that, even though it's not their main passion, or they recognize the market opportunity, um, but um, it's not something they're super passionate about, but they decide to pursue it. So I would say make sure you're really, really passionate about a problem and then focus your time and energy on learning as much as you can about that problem. One of the interesting things about Jobs to be Done as an innovation framework is what Jobs to be Done basically says is that we, um, as individuals, we don't actually buy products and services. We hire them to do jobs for us. And so, you know, one of my favorite examples of this is IKEA. Like, when you think about the way that IKEA has built themselves as a company and what job we hire IKEA to do, the job is, like, help me furnish my apartment today. Like, if somebody to say, I need to furnish my apartment today, like, the first thing that comes to mind for a lot of people are IKEA. And the way that they have designed their whole business from you know, coming in and being able to shop every individual room look to having a restaurant there so you can take a break to, um, you know, spot shipping everything so whether you have a truck or not, you can get it home. The same day deliveries. Everything they've done about building that company has been around doing that job. And so what I would say is for companies that want to start today, it's really fall in love with the problem you solve and spend time figuring out how, what that problem really is about. Because a lot of us get caught up in the kind of like tasks and the fun stuff about running the business mm-hmm. because it feels really good. It feels like you're making progress. Um, but oftentimes you might be moving really fast in the wrong direction. So look at the exploration of the problem as part of the progress and give yourself, you know, gold stars for doing it. Because I think that it's oftentimes work that doesn't feel very important because you don't have anything to show for it. You don't have a new blog post to click send on. You don't have a new website to show somebody. But it actually is the stuff that is the building blocks for success. And finally, what does your perfect self-care Sunday look like? Uh, That's a good question. I would say usually a great Sunday for me would be getting up, like getting um, the house tidy for the week. That gives me kind of like, I like doing it. It's kind of like mindless. Um, and I listen to podcasts, it makes me feel good. And then eating shitty food, <laughs> <laughs> watching like bad TV with my husband, and we'll sit on the couch and we have um, this game we play called Civilization where we'll just pass the computer back and forth between us and each take turns. And it's really kind of awesome. It's just relaxing, and I get to spend time with him, and I have no guilt about wasting an entire day. Like, it's just like, these are the things I want to do, and I'm totally okay with it. So good. I love that. I love especially that that you, like, have no guilt about it, because I think that's a thing that a lot of people 
especially perfectionists and especially entrepreneurs, it's like taking time off can feel really guilty because you're not doing something when you know that there's a million things that you could be doing. But making it a guilt-free space or like a guilt-free day is so important for our mental health. It has to happen. I feel like, and the other thing is, I mean, this is cliche, but you hear it all the time. The best ideas I've had and the real moments of clarity that I've had in the business have always come when I actually unplug. Mm-hmm. Yet when you're trying to work through a hard problem or you're trying to like get something done, like you don't give yourself that space because you just feel like, okay, I have to like keep working on this. I have to keep pounding away at it. But like it always happens when you step away that you get those moments of clarity. And so if you never give yourself that time, then you're just going to burn out and the work you produce is going to be shitty. Don't feel guilt about it because, like, remind yourself if you don't do this, you're probably going to produce some pretty crappy stuff. So true. (laughs) Well, thank you so much, Caitlin. This is awesome. I'm really looking forward to just following your journey more and continuing to see how things go. Thank you. And me too. Like, I've loved watching what you're doing. You're so smart. You're in a space that is, like, really and it's an exciting opportunity for a lot of companies and the way that you're doing it is the future because you know with anything in marketing I find that it moves really really quickly and influencer marketing has become this big thing but the authenticity that you bring to the work that you do and the stories that you tell that's what connects consumers with people and that will connect them with people who are representing brands so I just I think that you're brilliant and Mm -hmm. I can't wait to follow your journey. Thanks so much for tuning in to this week's episode of Self-Care Sunday. You can follow me, your host, Kaylee, at kaylee.e, K-A-Y-L-E-Y dot e on Instagram, or follow Self-Care Sunday at Self-Care Sunday and use the hashtag Self-Care Sunday to let us know how you're spending your Sunday and your self-care time. You can also subscribe on iTunes, Self-Care Sunday, or find show notes at selfcaresunday.co. Happy Self-Care Sunday, everyone.